Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Joseph Ellis, the Ford Foundation Professor of History at Mount Holyoke College. His latest book is American Creation, Triumphs and Tragedies in the Founding of the Republic. Joe, welcome to Econ Talk. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you. I want to start with a story. When I was about seven years old, my family moved from a very small town in eastern Washington state called Moses Lake to Lexington, Massachusetts. And my father, either out of uh, cruelty or love, I don't know which it was, he warned me that life in Lexington was going to be very different than life in Moses Lake. He said, you know, those kids in Massachusetts, because you know that's where the revolution started, they're going to know all about the revolution, and you're going to be way behind. I think he was thinking it would you know, inspire me to study up and do some uh-huh. reading. And Well, I didn't do any, but it turns out I didn't have to. Uh, I ended up living in Lexington for about 10 years. The only thing I remember about the American Revolution and the founding for my education there, nothing came from my classmates. They didn't know any more than I did, I don't think. The only thing I remember was the auditorium in Lexington High School where it said around the rim, April 19th, 1775, what a glorious day for America. And of course, we had Patriots Day, which meant uh, the Boston Marathon and an unusually late morning baseball game at Fenway Park. Don't really count that as part of the founding. <laughs> but the strangest part of this is that I went to a junior high school called Muzzy Junior High. Uh, I managed to leave that school, graduate from Lexington High School, and never find out, at least in my memory, who Mr. Muzzy was. And of course, he was Isaac Muzzy, who fell in the first shots of the American Revolution, the shot heard around the world, and on that fateful day of April 19, 1775 found that very strange, and so I have to confess uh, a debt of gratitude to you in that most of what I know about the founding comes from you. Uh, My reading of your books, like American Creation, Founding Brothers, American Sphinx, your story of Thomas Jefferson, and a few other people writing in the same vein, and as you point out in in the beginning of this book, it's a glorious time for American history. It is, for some reason that I don't understand and probably shouldn't look into too carefully, because I'm one of the major beneficiaries. The uh, over the last decade or so, there's been this surge of interest in the founding and the revolutionary generation, and there's always been um, popular interest, uh, general general public interest in the Civil War, which uh, with reenactors and with uh, people who can tell you how many mini balls were fired at Devil's Den. But some of that has moved back to the late 18th century, to the revolution, to the war for independence, to the founding generation. And um, you can actually sell books to people because they are genuinely interested in serious um, accounts of that, serious but accessible and written in language which is not highly specialized. Um, And as I say, I guess I've been one of the beneficiaries of that and... um, and it's 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 a good thing, um, but it's it's especially a good thing for what your your story implies, and that is, for most young Americans, um, uh, history begins. You know, you know, they're not interested in anything that happened before 1980, and um, <laughs> and so the notion that pretty far back, over 200 years ago, there were people saying and doing things that they ought to pay attention to and can learn from. That's just an uplifting experience. Yeah, no, that's a glorious thing. As you point out, you can actually sell books, and I think when you write... Yeah, as, like Founding Brothers has sold over 2 million copies. Well, when you write as well as you do, you can even get people to read <laughs> read the books. That's 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 the key thing. It's, 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 it's easy to print books. It, it's harder still to sell them and harder yet to get them to be read, but I, it, I, I salute it, Well, you. if you divide up the time it takes for me to do research and the time it takes me to write, um, it takes me twice as long write than to uh, research I, because I labor over it. And, um, and sometimes people trying to be complimentary, I'm sure, say, oh, gee, Joe, it must be wonderful to 
just sit down there and let it all flow out in the kind of lyrical prose that you're sometimes capable of. And um, I say, you see that paragraph? That took two days. Well, here, um, here, here. So that it's it's 95% perspiration and 5% inspiration. Well, I actually want to start with one of those paragraphs or a piece of, the, of a paragraph, a quote. I think it's from the introduction. You, you say the following. During the last quarter of the 18th century, a former colony of Great Britain generally regarded as a provincial and wholly peripheral outpost of Western civilization, somehow managed to establish a set of ideas and institutions that over the stretch of time became the blueprint for political and economic success for the nation-state in the modern world, end of quote. So how did we get here from there? You talk in the book about five triumphs and two tragedies. What were they? Well, first of all, the point that I'm making there and that you're underlining is that this last quarter of the 18th century is the kind of big bang in the American political universe, and out of that radiates the ideas and the values that continue to define uh, the American Republic, which is the oldest enduring republic in world history, and which continue to frame questions, not just in constitutional terms either, um, that are part of our, let's say, election in, in 2008. Um, uh, I think that one of my intentions is to recover that sense of uh, improvised genius um, and to identify the major sources of creativity, but also to identify the failures, um, which are tragedies, I think. Uh, whether they're Shakespearean or Greek tragedies is a good question to argue. And explain um, that distinction. Uh, Please. A, a Greek tragedy is a function of fates and the gods, and it couldn't have turned out any other way. It's built in. It, um, it doesn't. It's not susceptible to human agency. Uh, a Shakespearean tragedy is a function of uh, human foibles, human weakness, human ambitions, and uh, misguided ventures. And so, uh, a Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, could very well have turned out differently uh, with, if different decisions and different personalities were involved in the process. Um, but my intention here is to suggest that the story of the founding um, isn't a melodrama. It's not a sentimental tale. It's an epic. And it is an epic in which irony and paradox are the dominant values that you need to have in mind, that it's not the forces of light against the forces of darkness, Whigs versus Tories, good guys, bad guys. It's, um, it's all mixed together, and um, uh, it's human, human failure, it's inadvertent uh, brilliance, it's improvised uh, on the edge of catastrophe. Um, and so I want to tell a story or to provide a reader with the basic ingredients of a story which uh, is not a romance um, and which is an adult story rather than a juvenile story, which gets us past uh, these are the greatest figures in American history, these founders capitalized and mythologized, or on the other hand, they're the deadest, whitest males in American history who gave us racism, classism, slavery, imperialism, and all the other things. Forget um, patriarchy. Patriarchy, too, of course. And uh, so I just think that those juxtaposed categories and ways of telling the story are, are indeed adolescent, and um, uh, we need to move past them. Yeah, I heard you speak on this topic at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, and uh, I love that idea that, that we have mythologize these. Uh, unfortunately, as adults, we like children's stories too. So the idea of trying to bring these characters and the story itself into a more nuanced uh, telling, I think is a beautiful thing. I, I mean, I'm, I really mean what I'm saying there. And there are times when even people at a college age, and I teach at an undergraduate college, 18 to 22, uh, still are predisposed to see things in highly moralistic terms and there are moments, I hope not too many, when I wonder, maybe I'm wasting my time here. I've been wasting it for almost 40 years uh, because they're not ready for real history. And you need to have had history happen to you before you can be um, capable of understanding what, what real history 
is like. And um, that's a that I I throw that idea out, but then I throw it away because I I think that um, the version of the founding that I'm attempting to to tell uh, uh, I think any person who is serious about trying to understand the past is capable of grasping it. And again, just to highlight my own ignorance, you know, when I think back on the founding, you know, I think, well, we fought a war, we won the war, and then we had to decide what kind of government we wanted, and we we did that, and it turned out great, partly because these folks were so prescient and wise, uh, who who designed the Constitution, and uh, and we just went on and started living. And of uh-huh. course, it, the story—I think that's the story that most Americans have in the back of their head. They, they add the good guys and the bad guys in, in the in the cast as they go along, and we know who the good guys are, and the bad guys are the people who didn't get their way or were across the ocean. And um, but it's such a more interesting and and I think as you point out wisely, educational story for, yeah, for understanding mean, how the world works when you it, see it. It, it, it. Let me try to respond to the request a little earlier to maybe identify and complicate the version that you yeah, just. Go ahead. That, uh, there are uh, several major achievements that we need to recover uh, in their in in their original form. Um, like you say, we won the war for American independence. Well, that's true. We did, or maybe better said, better said, the British lost. Um, the British simply decided that the game was not worth the candle and withdrew in 1781, Peace Treaty 1783. But think about this. Um, how many wars between 1750 and 1950 did Great Britain lose? The answer is one. Yep. Uh, and that's the American Revolution. And it was a calamitous defeat because they lost a third of a continent. Um, and how was it that these 13 colonies, total population, I'm afraid my dogs are barking in the background. That's all right. It has a uh, touch of reality. Unless you have to deal with them, just keep on going. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll hope that they calm down. Okay. I apologize to the listeners. Um, if, if it's an armed intruder, I suggest you bolt. Or, or pardon me? If it's an armed intruder that they're uh, alerting you to, I suspect you respond to it. But otherwise, just go ahead. Okay. Um, um, I think that... Um, the, it was really not possible for the Continental Army to defeat the British Army and Navy. In a conventional war, much as the French and Indian War had been between the French and British armies, the uh, Continental Army had an average uh, experience, uh, had experience of, of service of six months. The British Army had an average experience of uh, a little over six years. Um, uh, in order for the United States, what becomes the United States, to win that war, they had to transform the war from a battle between armies to a battle that was more of an insurgency in which the British uh, had to not only win battles but occupy and and, uh, successfully pacify whole areas of a large, large uh, coastal a region. I mean, and as you start to tell this story, it begins to have eerie undertones because, in some sense, the dilemma of the British in North America and the Revolutionary War was somewhat analogous to our dilemma in Vietnam and then in now in Iraq. Um, but it was Washington's genius to come to understand this and to develop the strategy, which was not quite a guerrilla strategy because he was he did have a conventional army under his command, but which was a, a strategy of what they call a war of posts, meaning not to engage unless you had overwhelming force um, and to fight a kind of delay action until the will for the war back in London and Whitehall withered away. Um, and that's what happened. Um, there were a lot of tense moments, and I think the most um, dire threat to the survival of the American Republic in American history happens in the fall of 76 when, 1776, when the American army has been defeated in Long Island, New York, totally routed. Washington starts with 12,000 troops. He ends up with 3,000. 
They're fleeing across the Hudson, and if General Howe had pursued him at that moment, I think the war would have been over. I think a lot of other military specialists agree with me on this. Um, and and you know why he didn't is an interesting question. I think a woman is involved in the story um, who he wants to spend the, the winter with in New York. So that individual decisions, agency again, play a role. In order to be in order to be successful, you sometimes have to not be just be smart. You have to also be lucky. And in this instance, we really were lucky. Um, so that one of the great achievements was winning the war for independence against the dominant military power in the world. Um, and that that realization that Washington comes to that he's that he shouldn't try to fight a war. My way I read your book is the chapter on that is that it's sort of forced on him. It's not exactly his preference. No, he doesn't want to do that. In some sense, it's against his own personal and character grain. Washington is a man of honor and character in a very elevated sense, and he regards um, war as a summons to duel. If General Howe or later General Clinton presents his army, he feels that he's honor-bound to engage um, and that's what gets him into so much trouble in the early years of the war. He has to overcome that. Um, and he's sort of forced into it, as you say, simply because he doesn't have the troops um, to... Or the provisions. Or the or provisions the to be able to match uh, the British Army and, uh, and, let's say, attack New York, which is the British uh, uh, stronghold and headquarters. Um, that's what he really wants to do. But the absence of resources... Um, makes it impossible for him to do that. And that absence of resources also tells us something important, namely that after the first year or two of the war, popular opinion for the war, popular support, begins to wane outside of New England. And so that the, the, the states that are supposed to provide money and troops, in many cases, don't do that. Um, and they really, the, the Continental Army um, is a kind of turnstile, whereas People are signing up for a year. At the end of that year, they leave. Somebody else comes in. There's only about three or 4,000 troops who are there for what they call the duration. Some sense, and these are the, the poorest former indentured servants, recent Irish immigrants, um, freed slaves. The Continental Army is, um, a, at any given time, between 6 and 10% African-American. And it's in integrated units. It's the last time that they'll have integrated units in the American Army until the Korean War. Um, so the, more, the deeper you go, the more you see how complicated and how risky it was, how, in some sense, lucky Washington was. Though in the end, he does grasp it. And um, in the end, it's Washington's judgment on this. He's a man of ultimate judgment that allows us to affect the strategy, which eventually leads to a victory. And strikingly, as, as you talk about it, I think that two other things I want to add. One is that he does it not through his own solitary wisdom. He relies a great deal on his um, staff, which is very contrary to... Right. To British practice. British in, practice. Like in the British Army, what happens when a decision has to get made is that the, the chief officer, in this case, let's say Hal, uh, says, this is what I think we should do. We should attack Philadelphia, let's say. Um, and then to the other general officers, to what extent do you agree or disagree? And, of course, they almost always they agree. Why um, some of them? Washington says, I see the following three options. And he doesn't tell you which one he prefers. Um, we attack New York. Uh, we fight a, uh, a defensive battle or we attack Philadelphia. And then they ha he wants written responses from all of his generals, in this mm. case like 15 people. And so and those you, get generals, a, you get a more diverse and uh, honest set of responses because they, they don't know quite what the teacher wants in this situation. And the generals, as you point out, are not career army people with formal training. A lot of them are just thrown into the action. But in most cases, that's true. There are some generals who, I mean, certainly Green, who's Nathaniel Green, who's probably the most tactically brilliant of Washington's generals uh, by far, is a you know rank amateur. He's a Quaker who from Rhode Island who's never served in the military at all. Read some books about it, um, and um, 
Henry Knox, his chief officer in charge of artillery, is a former bookseller in Boston. There are some former British officers in the mix uh, with experience in the French and Indian War, but it is a group of amateurs. I think part of the reason, at least this was true true for me... Can you speak up a little bit? Yeah, sure. Uh, Part of the reason, I think that the Revolutionary War doesn't have the appeal for some that the Civil War does is that the Civil War has all these set battles that are very complex and full of interesting strategic and tactical maneuvering. And the Revolutionary War is more just sitting, a lot of, there's a lot of sit and wait. And I'd, I'd like you to talk about Valley Forge, which you identify as a turning point, because I learned a great deal from that section. I, I, again, you sort of have this image, uh, which you just dispelled, that, that the Continental Army, the American Army, were, were all these patriots, these, these inspired, uh, principled folks out to fight for their freedom. Most of them, as you point out, were poor, desperate people with not much else to do and found this yeah, to be... Yeah, one of the reasons they're there. They, they have no other prospects. Yeah, so, uh, and we come to Valley Forge, which is what year? 1777-78. Uh, and it's winter, and they're starving to death, many of them. So what, what right. happened there, and why did it turn out okay? Um, Valley Forge is an area outside of Philadelphia. It's actually one of the most... Uh, Agrarian, it's an agrarian breadbasket. It's highly productive. It's um, perhaps the most productive area for grain and wheat in in North America, which is one of the reasons that Washington picks it. But um, there's a war going on, a foraging war between the British and the Americans, which the British win because the British can pay um, real money uh, or pound sterling for the food, and the farmers are prepared to sell to the British rather than to the Americans. So that the British who are based in Philadelphia are, are living comfortably, whereas the American troops there are um, uh, starving. And there is a period of starvation for about six weeks. It is cold. There really is blood on the snow. That is, people walking in in, um, in rags on their feet and blood from the ice. Um, though there is no account of Washington kneeling in the snow, as you see in some prints, and praying to God for deliverance. Um, uh, about uh, 2,000 soldiers die, either from starvation or exposure, uh, during Valley Forge. Um, and um, and it's, it's, you know, it's a kind of Gethsemane experience, you know, for the Continental Army and for Washington. Um, and um, so some of, the, some of the dramatic accounts of it are actually true. But it's during that time that Washington begins to recognize, in part because of the character of the, the foraging expeditions around um, Valley Forge, the battle for the countryside, to see who can control the farmers and who can therefore control the food supply, that Washington broadens his notion of the war from a, a, a war between armies and set-piece battles to a war for control of the countryside, and therefore... He deploys his army during Valley Forge and then ever after in the war until the very end in this huge arc going from Philadelphia all the way up through New Jersey and into the hills of Connecticut. In some sense, that's the, that's the population of the middle colonies there. And so the deployment of the American Continental Army is designed to try to establish control. That if you don't have the Continental Army there, a significant portion, perhaps a majority of the citizenry, are going to end up siding with the British. Um, and so it's a way of uh, maintaining some kind of control over the population, and it works. Um, um, and then in 1781, um, uh, this providential opportunity presents itself in Yorktown. He always thinks the big battle is going to be in New York, New York City, but it doesn't. And when Cornwallis lands his 7,000 troops on the peninsula of Yorktown and the French fleet, again, almost by accident, shows up off the coast there. There's no cell phones. They can't communicate in the same way that we could. Um, uh, they've got those people trapped. Washington rushes his army down, and with a huge French assistance, um, um, it's the decisive battle in the war, after which the British sim- simply say, um, it, you know, we cannot sustain this. Um, and they begin to recognize they need to, to think of, surrender. Um, so 
it's a long and gruesome war. I mean, we, I think that my take on the comparison with the Civil War is a little bit different from yours in that I think one of the things that gives the Civil War a certain vitality and visibility is the photographs, the Matthew Brady photographs of the war. It helps. Which Ken Burns' wonderful documentary many years ago now uh, makes use of in great ways, um, and that there's no... There's nothing realistic. They're all romantic paintings that render this, uh, this this other kind of war, this American Revolutionary War. There are set-piece battles. There are strategic decisions in places like Monmouth Courthouse and, um, and several other major battles during 1777, 78, 79. But, um, but it's, uh, it's... And it's gruesome. I mean, uh, uh, the half... The battle casualties, the combat casualties in the Continental Army during the war were death from bayonet. Up close. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's you know and um, and the Hessian troops on the British side were committed to a policy of taking no prisoners. So if you if you were wounded in the American Continental Army, um, it was highly likely they were going to kill you. So. There's a, there's a, we think of this almost as a stately war, as a kind of uh, uh, something that's rarefied. And it's, well, once the, you understand the way it was fought, it is among the more grisly wars in American history. And that while the total casualties don't compare to the Civil War, as a percentage of the population, um, it's the highest casualty rate of any war in American history except the Civil War. Yeah, it's uh, the part of that uh, stateliness is the our vision of the uniforms. They're bright colors, and and we think. And the truth is, most of them didn't have uniforms. Yeah, I mean, towards the end of the war, they they get uniforms that are sent from France, but to, and there's no common uniform. I mean, different units had different colors. I mean, it's a motley crew. Yeah. And in fact, that when the British surrender at Yorktown, um, uh, and they come marching out. And between the lines of the French army and the American army, they they make fun of the American army. They say, you know, you put your hooligans, rough ruffians, and um, um, and I think that um, you know they don't look like soldiers from a British point of view. And I guess part of the time they didn't act like soldiers from the British point of no, view. No, I mean they're battle I mean, of Concord and, and, the, and one of the other. Yeah, well, one of where is it Concord and Lexington where you began your story? Um, they didn't run away. Most of them, and in New England, a lot of times the militias did stand their ground in battles. But outside New England, the militia were undependable and um, uh, were uh, were unable to perform as traditional troops. And um, and if you counted on them, on them, you were going to be in trouble. Um, so the myth of the the Minuteman is a bit misleading. Yeah. Okay, so that's the first triumph. The yeah. that we we win a we win a war that that seems like quite a long shot by turning it into a non-war of sorts. Let's let's move on to a, another triumph. Let's talk about the um, the Constitutional Convention and the wisdom and genius of James Madison, one of the founders who I think gets uh, insufficient glory in modern times. He is he's not as there's no great biography of him. There's no major monument to him uh, in Washington. One of the buildings of the Library of Congress, or one of the wings of the Library of Congress, is named after him. He's kind of the lawyer's founder. A lot of lawyers and judges like and know a lot about Madison, in part because he is correctly regarded as the father of the Constitution. And, um, and uh, I mean, no single person is responsible, but more than anybody else, he framed it, um, and defended it in the Federalist Papers. Um, and again, to go back to sort of this fake um, cartoon version, so we have 1783, we have peace. Uh, life is operating under the Articles of Confederation. Right. It, 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 that's right. And it, then in 1787, it, it, they sit down and they just kind of figure things out, right? <laughs> it's really... A, a, it doesn't work that way, but it would be lovely if it did. I think that um, at the during the war, as I said earlier, the sovereignty doesn't reside in the Congress. It resides in the states. 
And at the end of the war, instead of creating a Republican nation state, and the United States as a coherent nation, um, they become a confederation where, again, political sovereignty resides in the states. That they're essentially saying, we as separate colonies and states have come together to defeat the British, but now we're going to go our separate ways. It was never our intention to set up a separate and sovereign nation state. Um, now, there is a small group of people that don't agree with that and who have learned in the course of the war, and many of these are officers in the Continental Army like Alexander Hamilton and, of course, Washington himself, that if they don't come together and create a real union, then they're going to dissolve or they're going to split up into a series of regional sovereignties and perhaps be picked off in a predatory way by European powers. At the end of the war, it's pretty clear that the vast majority of American citizens' primary allegiance is not to the United States, but to their respective state. People will regard themselves as Virginians or, or New Englanders rather than as Americans. And when they use the term the United States, it's not a singular noun. It's a plural noun. They don't say the United States is. They say the United States are. And so the 1780s really is a kind of critical period where, in the end, a small group of men come to the conclusion that they're going to have to fundamentally change the Articles of Confederation. And if you think about it, the Constitutional Convention is, in some senses of the term, a kind of coup d'etat. Um, it's kind of decision by a small group of people to convene a convent, to have a convention in which they don't just revise the Articles of Confederation, but they actually replace them all together. They're not really empowered to do that, um, but they do it anyway. Um, this is what gives the old Beardian interpretation, Charles Beard's interpretation of the Constitution, some rationale, which he sees it as a kind of conspiracy. I, and he thinks of it as a somewhat malevolent conspiracy. I think of it as a very enlightened conspiracy. Um, uh, it seems to me pretty clear that in 1787-88, if you took, if you, if you had modern polling techniques, and you actually were able to poll the American populace, the citizenry at least, um, most of them wouldn't have wanted the Constitution. Most of them were happy with where they were, and again, they didn't have any sense of national identity. They had, their, their identity was primarily regional and state. So, and what we create, this is important to, to recognize, is the first large-scale republic in world history. There had never been a republic as large as the United States. Republics were small, swift cantons or Greek city-states. It was presumed from the classical period onward that a republic couldn't work over a large landmass and a large population. So they define all the conventional wisdom in creating what they call a consolidated uh, republic that is no longer a confederation but a unified nation-state. So how did Madison make the case, and as you point out in the book, it's not an easy case for him to make initially since it seems to go against some things he said before. How does Madison make the case for that geographically dispersed republic, given that he is such a great student of history and knows that there's never been a big one? He knows that he's going to have to meet that argument because the people in the convention and then in the ratifying conventions that are opposed to this are going to throw this argument in his face. So in the weeks and months before the convention in the spring of 1787, he goes on a, a kind of cram session on, on classics and ancient history. Um, he also reads Adam Smith, he reads David Hume, and he comes up with an argument that's most explicitly made in the Federalist Papers in Federalist Number 10, though he articulates the same argument during the debates in the convention itself, namely that instead of, instead of seeing size and scale as a problem or a weakness, it is an asset or a strength if you increase the size of a republic, you also increase the number of interest groups or factions that will be part of it. And as they reach a certain size, they interact and cancel out one another, much in the same way that the 
the marketplace of Adam Smith is a series of competing interest groups that increases productivity. So that, uh, that enlarging the size of the republic will enhance its stability, uh, not um, uh, diminish it. And, um, and that's an argument that, um, you know, is counterintuitive to most people, and, um, uh, but it wins the day, at least in 1787-88. And does it win the day intellectually? Does he persuade people with that argument? I don't really think so. I think that, um, I mean, it's, it would be, uh, I think that the, uh, the argument is so original that when he makes it in the convention and then again in the Federalist Papers, I don't think there are too many people that can, can quite grasp it. I think it looks more impressive to us up here in the present because it becomes, it, be, it becomes so prescient, but that... Um, I, my, and, and if you take a look at the circulation of the Federalist Papers, they don't get far beyond New York for very much, and so there aren't too many people that actually even know about this argument. Um, so I'm a bit of a cynic on that, and um, there are a few other constitutional scholars who agree with me. Um, uh, and in the end, once you, the more you get into the reasons why people voted one way or the other, either at the convention or in the 12 different ratifying conventions, Rhode Island never has one, um, it's local and regional issues about how they perceive whether or not their own best interest is going to be served by joining this union. Um, and, I, and so it's, it's interest-driven rather than idea-driven politics, I think. The thing I learned the most from that discussion, and it, it really has shaken me, it's caused me to think a lot, is that, again, in my grade school cartoon version, a bunch of these very, very smart men sat around and tried to figure out the best form of government, and they debated back and forth in the Federalist Papers. But the biggest debate was whether to have a government at all, whether to have a national government That's as right. opposed to just a confederation. And I'd like you to talk... About two things. First, I'd like to hear why Madison was able to carry the day. As you point out, a small group of people, Madison, Washington, Hamilton, people who had endured the challenges of trying to run an army without a federal government, right. uh, may have been more uh, susceptible to the idea. And, of course, it also led to them having great power over the next uh, two or three decades, so four decades. So it's not surprising that they were found it appealing, how did they convince the rest of the folks that this was a good idea, especially given what appears to be the case in my reading of your book, that between 1783 and 1787, the man in the street was doing pretty well without a federal government. That's right. The economy was humming along. Um, we were in debt. Um, we were a kind of banana republic internationally. We owed tons of money to European uh, countries, especially France, we couldn't repay because we couldn't raise any taxes. Um, but from a domestic point of view, you know, the birth rate was going up, um, Virginia's economy was booming, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, how did they do it? <laughs> um, one thing that I guess I would say is from Madison's point of view, he thought he failed. Um, That's also interesting. Yeah, that yeah. When he left the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in sep September of 1787, he thought that he had failed to win the day because he wanted a clear delineation of federal sovereignty. Instead, he got an ambiguous relationship between federal and state sovereignty. And, um, and he thought that that was a failure. He wanted a federal veto of all state laws. Um, and he wanted... Equal represent, excuse me, he wanted popular representation in both houses so that the Senate wouldn't just be two for each state, but would be again according to population. He thought that by allowing it to be by state, continued the power of, of the state versus um, the, the, the population of the nation as a whole. It turns out that what he perceived as a failure was really perhaps the most the secret of the Constitution's success, that is, its very ambiguity created a framework in which there had to be an ongoing argument on a case-by-case -case basis of uh, where sovereignty lay or lie. Um, in fact, to answer your question in a more stark way, if, in fact, Madison had gotten his way 
and the, the document defined federal power as clearly sovereign and made clear than it did what executive power was or made even clear that the justice system or the, the <coughs> judiciary was going to be able to um, have final say on the meaning of the Constitution. If any of those questions had been resolved clearly, the Constitution would have never been ratified because people were not yet ready to accept an allegiance at the federal level. It looked too much like the same kind of faraway power that London and England had represented during the Revolution. And that was the last thing they wanted. They wanted something close to them. They wanted almost, a, you know, at a town meeting, you look the man in the eye, or at the state level, you at least feel that you know your representatives. This more faraway kind of government was something that was very alien to them, and uh, and it was going to take 30 or 40 years after the War of 1812 before you can begin to get a truly national ethos in the United States. Well, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, although I want to add a footnote that 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 faraway government is still kind of alien, I think, to many Americans. That's right. It's still, I mean, I think that uh, for, um, for conservatives, um, uh, especially, um, you know, the, the power of the federal government is always problematic. And for them, government is them rather than us. Um, and um, and they, are, they are on solid historical ground because that's been... A, a, a very crucial ingredient in the American political conversation from the start. Uh, and, uh, just one other one other uh, digression. Uh, this the spirit of '76 was very much uh, fought over, and just as it's fought over today, it was fought over then as to what was the authentic government that should emerge uh, post-revolution. Right. That's absolutely right, and to me, the most uh, dramatic and poignant version of what you just say is the the correspondence between Adams and Jefferson in their twilight years, from seventeen from eighteen twelve to eighteen twenty six. They both died rather uh, incredibly on the same day, July fourth, eighteen twenty six, the fiftieth anniversary of the Declaration. Um, but they share about one hundred and fifty five letters. And those letters are really a debate about what they have done and what they think the American Revolution represents. In other words, they don't agree about that. <laughs> um, and here are two of the central players right. um, who really clearly don't have the same understanding of what the American Revolution and what the spirit of 76 really represents. Um, and so that buried in our history is an ongoing debate about crucial fundamental issues um, and to some extent, it makes me um, impatient with jurists, um, especially Supreme Court justices, who claim that they're going to render judgment on the current constitutional controversies according to the original intent of the framers. Well, they didn't agree. Yeah. Um, and um, so that there's not this kind of consolidated body of original intent wisdom that you can go back and discover. What you discover is a debate. Although, as you point out, they were very aware that their debate was really a public debate, even though it was conducted by letter, and they were yeah, they're, certainly they're playing, they're playing to posterity yeah. to some extent. Too. They, they, they're writing letters as much to us as they are to sure. each other, and somewhat posturing. But the, the, the underlying disagreement is, is quite real. And Adams is a Federalist, a New Englander. He thinks slavery is misguided. He thinks the federal government needs to be the clear sovereign. Jefferson thinks the state should have total control over all domestic policy, that the federal government is really a foreign government except when it comes to foreign policy. Um, and, um, I mean, in some sense, those, that, issue, that issue doesn't get resolved ever, but the primary resolution of it occurs not in the courts but on the fields of battle during the Civil War. Yeah. Well, I want to come to some tragedies, but I want let me just summarize where we are uh, in our discussion of the Constitutional Convention. And this is where I want to skip ahead a little bit. You've just mentioned two more of the triumphs: the the creation of a republic that spans a large geographic space, which was a tremendous uh, innovation, and the ambiguity of sovereignty, which was not designed but emerged in a Hayekian fashion uh, from that Constitutional Convention to Madison's. Uh, dismay, but turned out probably to be a very fortunate 
he uh, got what he wanted, it would have all fallen apart. So I want to ter- I want to take that last issue of amb- ambiguous sovereignty and apply it as you do to one of the tragedies, which is the treatment of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Which you describe an episode in history, which I was unaware of, uh, where Henry Knox comes to uh, George Washington as president and urges him to resolve the question of the Native Americans. So talk a little bit about how we went from from that uh, at that time to the um, what happened in, in Georgia that that any te- attempted solution fell apart. All right. Um, soon after Washington comes into power, his Secretary of War, Henry Knox, who had served with him for seven and a half years as in the in the Continental Army, uh, comes to Washington and says, um, we need to reach a just resolution with the Native American peoples um, east of the Mississippi. That our legacy as revolutionaries is dependent on allowing their, their consent um, to be um, to control the decision that we can't just regard them as conquered people. And um, uh, and they weren't conquered. And they weren't. Most of them weren't. That's right. But most of them had sided with the British Army during the American Revolution. Um, and the plan was this, that we will set up a series of enclaves east of the Mississippi, six or seven of them, in which we signed treaties with the Native American tribes that will be regarded as, um, these, these tribes will be regarded as, as sovereign nations, just as sovereign as France or England. These are, these are, this, this is a matter of foreign policy, and therefore the executive branch has a great deal of autonomy over it. And they attempt to put this in place with a model treaty with the Creek Nation, which is in what is now Alabama, Mississippi, and parts of Georgia. It's a very big enclave. When I when I first heard you talk about this at Stanford, I, I had in mind um, a much smaller area. It was a massive area. Yeah, it's as big as Alabama. Yeah. And uh, though they foresee it will shrink over time, but um, but they want to create these so- sovereign enclaves where Native American culture is protected by treaty, and where if if there are violations protected by American military power. Um, and so they have the Creek chiefs come to the, uh, the capital, <coughs> excuse me, which is then New York, and um, they have, they're there for a month. Extraordinary fanfare. It is. I mean, it's like amazing that nobody has written about this because it's all in the newspapers back then. I mean, every day they're talking about, you know, seeing all these Indians walking around New York and having dinners and da-da-da-da-da. Um, the idea that is that the core of the Knox-Washington plan makes logical sense. They do sign this model treaty with the Creeks, um, but they can't enforce it. Um, Knox estimates that in order to defend the Creek borders against intruders, and there are thousands of them pouring over from Georgia, uh, would take about 50,000 troops. And the, these intruders are, are settlers. These are just people yeah, they're looking not, for... Yeah, they're not soldiers. They're just settlers that want to, you know, they're, they're pursuing their happiness in good Jeffersonian ways, seeking uh, land to the West. And the state government of Georgia is encouraging this because Georgia claims to actually own all the land from its current eastern borders to Mississippi. Um, Slightly and, larger than Georgia today. And they're selling this land. It's all kind of corruption down there, something called the Yazoo Companies. And, um, and Washington regards this as the largest failure of his presidency, that he thinks that it's absolutely clear that a just settlement with the Native Americans is in keeping uh, with the revolutionary principles that he fought for, and that a failure to give a just settlement is going to be a permanent stain on his reputation and legacy. Um, and he, he one time says, the only thing that we can do is build a Chinese wall. Um, but even that's not going to protect him. He says, and the true story will never be told 
because the Indians, Native Americans, don't have their own press, and our press is going to falsify what really happened. Um, in the end, this is a tragedy, and again, I've asked myself, could it have happened differently? That sense is Greek or Shakespearean. I think not. I think that demography here is is really all powerful. That um, that in in the year of the Treaty of Paris, there are like eighty thousand Native Americans between the Alleghenies and the Mississippi, and there's like five hundred Anglo Americans. By eighteen hundred. There are 60,000 or 50 to 60,000 Native Americans, and there are 500,000 uh, white settlers coming across or settling. And so demography defeats all other plans of, of justice. They just can't stop it. And the federal government doesn't have the power to do so. I mean, if it were the 20th or 21st century, uh, the president could have nationalized or the, the, you uh, sent out the National Guard. Called out the National Guard in Georgia, uh, declared a federal sovereignty over it, and established, you know, some control. But they just don't have the power to do that in the late 18th century. It's not established. And um, well, a lot of things weren't established. I, I particularly enjoyed your story of Washington uh, going to the Senate to fulfill the advise and consent clause for the treaty. The first time he tries to get a treaty with the Creek right. uh, Nation, what what t tell our listeners what happens? Well, he thinks that the advice and consent language of the Constitution means he has to go to the Senate to formally request their support for the treaty. The two thirds vote is required, and and ask for their advice as well as their consent. And he goes there, and it's all, you know, it's a jumble. They don't know, you know, they don't know how to address him. Uh, then they say, "Well, we can't vote on this until we see all the documents." And um, and you know, and, and Washington gets up and says, "This defeats my whole purpose for coming here." Um, and he sees that advice and consent cannot mean direct executive involvement in the Senate. And while he does come back one more time, that's the last time that advice and consent means uh, presidential presence inside the Senate chamber. Um, and uh, and I, I think that. If that's the way the meaning of that language gets worked out in almost all the cases in these kind of messy um, improvisations. Trial and error. Yeah, trial and error. I want to go back to the tragedy for a second. I want to. I, I wanted to ask you a question. I forgot about one of the triumphs. Um, so the the Indian story then has a it sort of spins out of control. The the federal executive branch can't really work its will. Doesn't have the troops doesn't have the culture really to impose its will on Georgians right. and as a result any attempt to create some sort of independent enclave where the hunter-gatherer nation will have the space to do its thing along with something you mentioned which is fascinating this idea that they would quote become civilized through agriculture and, and an attempt to subsidize agricultural education and implements I mean, it's a, it's really an incredible story yeah, that, that, what he, what Washington at one point says, in a century they might decide they wish to become their own. They want to petition uh, us to become separate states within the American Union. So that doesn't work out, no. and one of the reasons, among many, is 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 the demography. But one of the other reasons is that even the federal government existing then, even though it was more federal than some Americans wanted, certainly wasn't strong enough to stop it. Right. What might speculate for a minute what might have happened had Madison totally failed in 1787, gotten nothing of what he wanted, and we had stayed a uh, a confederacy of 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 states rather than a, a federal nation with federal power. I Especially, and let me add just one thing: it's clear from your book that that the founders were deeply afraid of empire. They right. were deeply afraid of becoming the British, and in many ways, and I don't use empire in a purely pejorative way at all. Many do. I don't. But in many ways, we just became the next British Empire. So what do you think uh, might have happened had we resisted that? What would have happened if we had not become, if the Constitution had not been ratified? Correct. Um, I think that we would have become a series of regional sovereignties, New England, the Middle Colonies, the South, uh, which regarded themselves as separate nations. Um, and I think that it's likely 
that we would have been much more vulnerable to European intrusion, be it French, British, or Spanish uh, intrusion, um, and that the uh, and then that eventual spread across the continent would have produced conflicts between and among these different confederations, which would have probably led to some kind of a civil war, um, not over the issue of slavery necessarily, but over the issue of who controls the West. Um, So it would have been a much messier, and in the end, you know, you can't spin it out, but can't be sure how it would have turned out, but certainly it would have been riddled with conflict and perhaps violence. And the one, I mean, you know, if you're really one of those people that objects to the power of the United States now as a as an imperial nation of its own, um, we would have never become that. No, that's true. Uh, we would have been a relatively weak country, and I think that um, uh, would not have played the same role in the 20th century that we did. Yeah, with good and bad. Although I good wonder, and bad, I but wonder, I think mostly bad. Yeah, I wonder what the. Uh... As an economist, I wonder what the economy would have turned out like. If if we could have kept some free trade, I think a, a smaller role for the federal government would have been a, a good thing, but I might be wrong. Uh, we're almost out of time. I know you have to run in a minute. Um, talk about – we have we left out uh, a triumph still – I think two triumphs yet to mention and uh, a tragedy. So can you, you want to just talk about those briefly before you have to run? I do have to go pretty soon. Um, um, well, one of the tri- triumphs that I think – we should mention is the creation of a two-party system, which, again, given the way in which most political parties in the United States now are regarded as nefarious entities, um, that the creation of a viable two-party system, some embryonic version of this did exist in Great Britain, but not in the way it developed in the United States. What it does is it legitimizes dissent. It makes it possible for two sides to argue out on a controversial issue, and the loser is not sent to the guillotine or the firing squad wall. It's a beautiful thing. Which is what will happen in France and later on in Russia. And um, so that the notion that there is such a thing as a legitimate opposition, and if you lose an election, you just go into the wilderness for four years and come back again. Yeah, it's a great um, thing. That's a big idea. And nobody ever had that before. Um, another idea, I mean, it's related to the same kind of principle, in some sense, of separation of church and state. That up until that point in time in, in Western history, it was assumed that any nation had to have a state religion because it was the glue that would hold everybody together. Without that, they would all end up arguing and, and fighting. And... Um, and we can see that in places like Iraq, that still is a fact. Yeah. But in the United States, they establish in the Bill of Rights that the federal level, at least, doesn't work at the states. There's still state-supported religion in, in several of the states uh, up until 1820s. But you cannot have that religion and politics are separate. Yeah. And, you know, there's a wall of separation in Jefferson's term. And they really mean that. Um, and that is a that is a modern idea that doesn't reach the rest of Western civilization until the 20th century. They're a century ahead of their time in that regard. And it's clearly an idea that ironically let religion flourish, as we've talked about. That's hearing. right. In some sense, the most recent book on this called uh, "Faith of Our Founders" by a evangelical, by the way, um, really says that religion will be more robust if it is disconnected with politics. And um, and that's, I think, I mean, you get the evangelical movement in early 19th century America um, uh, largely because of this. And the Baptists all support this and because they're going to be pros- they're persecuted if, if, uh, sure. if there is any kind of religious establishment. You, you said the two-party idea was an idea no one had ever had before. Did anyone have that idea then, or was it more one of these emergent results that came out of uh, political uh, debate? Um. You can. There is again an embryonic version of this in British history, and Burke has some statements. Edmund Burke that suggests that he understands this. Madison and other places has some um, statements that suggest he understands this. But it is very difficult for most of the founders to grasp the principle of legitimate opposition. 
Jefferson and Adams in the 1790s don't think of each other as equals who are both fighting for principles that they disagree on. They think one of them is right and the other is wrong. Um, and um, well, I don't know if that's the idea much. of a legitimate opposition is really tough for them to come to terms with. In that sense, they create a, a context that that becomes its own. You know, be, that becomes uh, the uh, you know a, 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 a willingness to accept an opposition. But they they go to their graves having a, having a very difficult time. Close with our the the tragedy we haven't mentioned. Uh, we've mentioned the five triumphs. Close with the tragedy of slavery. In some sense, it's without well, I think without question, the greatest tragedy. Um, could we have ended slavery in the late 18th century? The failure Peacefully. to do so yeah. by the early years of the 19th century, in my judgment, makes some kind of civil war inevitable. We know that will happen, and it will cost the lives of over 600,000 people, and there will be about 15 million African Americans who live and die in slavery during that 60-year uh, period or 70-year period of time. Um, uh, I think that there were people suggesting plans for gradual emancipation, and the normal argument against it was economic. It was simply unaffordable, because you would have to compensate the planters, the white planters, and the owners of slaves, and that the cost of that was astronomical something on the order of $70 million on a budget, an annual budget that was only 4 to $5 million at that time. Um, I think the economic side of it was soluble because the Western land that was acquired later with the Louisiana Purchase produced revenues into the federal coffers to the tune of six to $700 million. If they had set some of that money aside... They had the money to do it, especially if, with the Louisiana Purchase, they had ruled that all the incoming states had to be free states. Um, the problem, the deeper problem, <coughs> I think, was racism. Namely, even the most enlightened opponents of slavery, to include people like, um, well, you know, like Washington, um, and later on, people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, they all assumed that once freed, the African Americans would have to be sent elsewhere, either back to Africa or to the Caribbean. Um, the, they could not imagine a biracial society. It's, it's interesting. They could imagine a large republic. They could imagine the separation of church and state. They could imagine all kinds of creative things. But on this issue of race, race trumps anything imaginative in the late 18th century. And it's, it's it, whereas, I mean, I, I, so short of a couple million frontal lobotomies, hmm. I don't know how we could have changed that. Though I do think that on a purely economic side, it was a soluble problem. But it is a tragedy. But and, uh, they, and they I struggle with it. The Native American tragedy is pretty huge. In my judgment, this one is even larger. I think it's important to point out, as you do, that um, the founders viewed it as a tragedy as well. They did, but most Not of too them, much the, the thing that I haven't said that needs to be said, most of the founders thought initially that they didn't have to do anything because slavery was going to die a natural death, that free labor would defeat slave labor and that it would simply, over time, disappear. Um, it didn't happen. They didn't foresee the cotton gin. They didn't foresee the cotton kingdom. Um, and the second thing that's poignant is that they saw it, most of the leaders, people like Washington, Adams, um, Madison, they saw it as a choice between making an effort to end slavery, and if they did that, they would probably kill the American Republic in the cradle. But this issue was so combustible, so volatile, that if they raised it and addressed it directly, that the, you know, the South would secede. And the South, you know, Virginia and South of Virginia all said that. So it's a, it's a really 
I mean, it's what we ought to be talking about up here in the present, not you know imposing our multicultural values on these these guys back in the back in the 18th century, but saying, was it possible to do this um, and still preserve the Union and the American Republic? And that is a very difficult question to ask. But for Washington, Madison, Adams, the answer was clear. It wasn't worth the risk. You don't mention Jefferson. He's different. I think he has high rhetoric on this, um, but I think he is... Um, less willing to give serious consideration to any form of gradual emancipation than the others. Yeah, well, he was caught between his own personal... He's got his own slave, but so yeah. did Washington. Washington had more slaves than, than Jefferson. Yeah, I think um, but he... Washington is the only one of the major Virginia planters, founders, to free his slaves in his will. But as you point out, part of that may have been for his legacy. and Part know, of it is because he knows we're going to have this conversation in 2008. Yeah. He, was very he wants to come out on the right side of it. I think he was also a better manager, and I he think was. He, farm, he wasn't in debt. His plantation was probably a lot more successful, and he could probably. It was, it. even though even he lost money, but he had so much money in Western land. But um, but it's from an economist's point of view, one of the problems of condemning Jefferson is that, in some sense, Jefferson could not free his slaves legally because he didn't own them. Because he, yeah, mm. his creditors owned them. What an indictment of his um, lifestyle. Which he is, ends up about, the modern terms, about $10 million in debt. And all of his slaves, whom he's promised they're never going to sell him down the river, get sold down the river after he dies. And his only surviving daughter, Martha, becomes a ward of the state. I mean, it's a sad, sad story. My guest today has been Joseph Ellis of Mount Holyoke College, author of American Creation. Joe, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's been my pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.